Hey, thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us, you can head to our website at RenewalChicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Galatians has been an awesome book for me just to work through in my own study, but it's one that we we as Christians, we need because here it is Paul calling the Galatian church back to the gospel. They've been trusting different gospels and additions to the gospel. And he's saying there's only one gospel message by which we're saved, and that's by grace and, and faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2 today. We've worked our way through Galatians 1, so if you missed that, uh, hop online or the podcast and catch up with us. But Galatians chapter 2 I'm going to read the first 10 verses this morning, so if you got a Bible, go ahead and meet me there, and when you're able, edit if you're able, stand on your feet as we read the Word of God together. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you got it, go ahead and say, got it. All right, Galatians 2, verse 1 reads, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Taking Titus along with me, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run, had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield into submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. You got to love Paul here. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Very word of God, amen. Today I want to preach on the topic, stand firm no matter what. Stand firm no matter what. Before we go any further, though, let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We thank you for just a space for us to gather even in the midst of the new fall weather and rain and um, whatever may have happened or gone on throughout this week, God, we give you thanks that we're here today. God, I do ask, as I ask each week, that you would stand in my body, that you speak with my mouth and you think with my mind, God, that you would hide me behind your cross so that you be lifted up in this place. Decrease me, Lord, so that you may increase in this place. We need a word from you, Lord, and the Holy Spirit have your way in our hearts. And allow us to hear and receive what you have for us. This is the mighty name of Jesus. We all sit together. Amen. Amen. You can sit. You can be seated. 
Well, have you ever fought for something before? I mean, what I mean is, have you ever given your life to something and fought for it no matter who stepped in the way? You didn't back down. You ever been there before? Well, it was on December 1st, 1955, when 42-year-old seamstress named Rosa Parks, you may have heard of her, she would board a Montgomery City bus traveling home from work one day, and at the time, the buses were uh, segregated and so uh, because of Jim Crow laws, and the first 10 rows of the bus were, or 10 seats were reserved for white people. And so if you were black at that time, even though you might be sitting towards the back of the bus, if a white person entered the bus and all of the seats that were white only were taken, then you were or might be asked and probably would be asked to get up out of your seat and give that seat to the white person that entered the bus. Well, on this day, Rosa sat behind the first 10 seats in the right section, along with three other black individuals, and the bus started to fill up, and a white man enters the bus, and because all of the seats that are white only were taken, the bus driver gets up, proceeds to the back, and he asks Rosa, as well as the three other individuals, to get up out of their seats so he could sit down. The three individuals get up, but Rosa refuses. And although she's a very high-ranking member or active member in the NAACP, that's not why she refused to get up out of her seat that day. She refused simply because she was tired. And as a result of this, she was arrested and convicted of not abiding by Jim Crow laws of segregation. Now, there were seat refusals that happened before this one, but Rosa was such a dedicated member to the NAACP, and because of this, there was an outcry in the community. People were outraged. People were upset. And it caused the bus boycott that led to the Montgomery Improvement Association boycotting the bus. This is led by none other than the prolific young minister himself, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, this bus boycott would last for some 381 days. That's more than a year. Now, this is a major problem because the majority of riders, 75% to be exact, were made up of black people. And so all the revenue, most of the revenue was gone. And all of this happened because a 42-year-old seamstress was tired. And see, although it wasn't a premeditated act, she didn't get on there and say, I'm not moving. She would say these words regarding the incident. Look at it with me. She said, when I made that decision, I knew that I had the strength of my ancestors with me. You may ask, well, what's that strength? It's the strength of hundreds of years of enslavement of her people that they worked through where she was able to sit in that seat and say, I'm not moving. It's the strength of the African Methodist Episcopal Church that she was a part of that was started by free black people because they weren't able to fellowship in the white church. It's the strength of having to endure time of countless unjustified murders by white supremacists. It's that strength that allowed her to sit on that bus that sparked a movement 
to where we all can enjoy the liberty of being with one another today. The roots of her strength, what I'm trying to get at, ran deep. Her foundation was strong. And Paul today, in our text, much like Rosa, he stands firm and fights for the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation to the point that he stands up to the other high-ranking apostles and says, no, this is the only message of the gospel. All that other stuff is false. This is the only message. He stands firm on his foundation and his belief in Jesus. And I got to ask you this morning, how strong is your foundation in your faith in Jesus? Is it strong enough for you to stand in the face of culture? Is it strong enough for you to stand in the face of the naysayers? Your friends, your family, or those folks that are bold enough to say that what you believe is false. What's your foundation look like? Paul, he told, today he shows us what standing firm looks like. But he also, just like Rosa, he shows us that standing firm, don't miss this, standing firm is best done with the strength of community. Today I got three points and I'll be out your way and y'all can go to brunch. Number one, freedom in Christ, not legalism. Freedom in Christ, not legalism. Number two, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And lastly, communal affirmation is good. Communal affirmation is good. Now, by way of reminder, as we're getting in this text, Paul is writing to the Galatian church because although he shared the gospel message with them, false theology as well as additions to the gospel have started to enter their culture, their belief, and the people of the Galatian church are now starting to trust a different message by which one could be saved. The one, the, instead of the one that you're saved purely by God's grace and faith in Jesus Christ alone, they start to trust this. And Paul comes in and he says, look, let me correct you. Let me help you. He says that anybody who adds to the gospel should be a curse. He says, even myself, Apostle called by God, sent by God. If I add anything to this gospel message, I should be accursed. Paul says, there's only one gospel message by which one can be saved. He goes on later in chapter 1 to explain that the grace of God is what saves the believer. It's not by what we do. It's not by what we bring to the table. It's by God's grace alone which gives us freedom. This gives us freedom from seeking anybody else's approval because we're approved solely in Jesus Christ alone. Now, listen, I got to help you all because I think sometimes when we hear this freedom and we talk about freedom in Christ, it creates lazy Christians. I know I'm about to step in someone's kitchen a little bit. See, being free in Christ and this freedom, it doesn't mean that you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that you don't honor your boss. Being saved by grace means that there's nobody or anything, even yourself, that gives you your identity. 
So this is a matter of identity. Your identity is in Christ now as a, as a believer. You're saved by grace, which now gives the believer freedom because now my life is no longer in my hands. It's not just in my hands. Everything I do is not based off of what's in my hands. It, I, I rest solely now in the palm of my Father's hands. I rest solely in Jesus' hands, which now gives me freedom. But it gives me freedom to work hard because God first worked hard on my behalf. So what that means for the believer, hear me now, it means that if he worked hard on your behalf and now he's called you to go off and show his glory to the world, that means that the believer in actuality should be the hardest working, most honoring person at the job. Because you're now showing off the glory of God. You're on time, you're respectful, all of these things. But here's the thing that you got to hold in tension. What you do and how you work is not where you get your approval. Like you, 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 Your salvation is still not based off your performance. So we hold those things in tension, but freedom in Christ allows me to work hard. And I, in really, reality, I should be working hard because he worked hard for me. I got I to gotta touch on that a little bit because I, I do believe our culture, we're kind of lazy sometimes. It's just reality, we don't know hard work. But we should be really the ones working hard. Paul uses his testimony here to show us that he was the last person that one would think would be saved, let alone called by Christ. He's a known killer of Christians. He's, he made it his mission, as, as zealous as he was, to destroy the Christian church. He lets us know that he did everything possible that one could imagine that would make him the most unlikely person to be called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. His testimony lets us know, here it is, that God saves based upon his grace and his grace alone, not by what we do. He calls Paul to himself and then he sends him based off of his grace. Paul says that people now, once they see him, they remember him and his works. And because of his now transformation, they glorify God. They, know, they knew Paul, and now they see something different. The one that used to persecute the church is now the one who's telling people about Jesus. See, what we learn with all of this, this is for us, is that we all have a story. Each one of us have a story. We all have done wrong. We've had bad motivations. We've even had moralistic good intentions that weren't according to God's word. Or it, we, we're trying to seek our approval and what people think about us or et cetera on down the line instead of what God thinks about us. But when we come to know Jesus and the truth of the gospel, our testimony now becomes a story about the goodness and the grace of God over our lives. Your testimony and your life becomes a witness to a holy and a matchless God who chooses to love us and saves us by grace. This is important and it's key, especially for us living in Chicago, because everyone in Chicago, they're asking questions. That, Why should I believe in this Jesus? They're looking at your life and they're saying, why should I believe in this Jesus? Why should I believe in God when I can achieve all the things I want in life by myself? Why should I believe in God when I look out and I see all this evil and all the hatred and everything happening in the world? Why should I believe in God? Why? 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 And hear me, your testimony, your story, 
are the words that people need to hear that gives them hope, that points to something greater than what we can have in this world. It points to Jesus. People need to hear your story. They need to hear about the glimpses of grace and what God has done in your life. That's why I asked you last week, what's one thing and one way you've seen God's grace in your life? And then I challenged you to share that with somebody. And I hope you did that last week because people need to hear it. Paul's story, as he talked about in chapter 1, is one that speaks of the grace of God. In our passage today, Paul, he begins by saying in verse 1, look back at the text with me. He says that he went back to Jerusalem, taking Barnabas and Titus with him, both now being ministry partners with Paul and Titus being one of Paul's disciples. They traveled with him quite a bit, proclaiming the message, but this time is a little different. And I got to say this because sometimes we can read the Bible too quickly and we miss what's actually happening. We read the passage wrong. The text says in verse 2 that Paul went back to the apostles that had authority. Most likely he's referring to Peter, James, and John according to verse 9 in the text. He goes back to make sure that the gospel he has been proclaiming happening in the passage, it ain't. Now, if you read this too quickly and you don't pay attention to what's happening in the passage, it almost looks like like Paul is unsure of himself. He, He needs to go back and get affirmation. But in reality, Paul is going to make sure everyone is still on the same page. He he goes back, he said, I I I need to make sure that y'all are still preaching and proclaiming the gospel of grace. Y'all haven't started believing this mess, have you? Y'all haven't gone astray. We're still on the same page, right, Peter? He goes to the high-ranking authority, these apostles that that all called just like him. He's like, y'all, we we still believe the same thing, right? I'm telling you, you gotta love Paul. You gotta love him. The audacity and his boldness here. And and on top of that, he brings Titus with him. Why is Titus significant? Because Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile Greek who believes in Jesus. You got to love Paul because Paul, as you get to know him and his writings, Paul got a little gangster in him, y'all. He's like, I'm going to challenge whoever it is. I'm standing firm. He's a little gangster. This man confronts these high authority apostles Because cultural dynamics have started to enter salvific qualifications. Things like, if you call Jesus Lord and Savior, then you got to be circumcised. You call him Lord and says, although you're now Christian, you have to be culturally Jewish. Cultural or dietary restrictions on legalism. Paul says, look, look, him now. You're now disqualifying my message, my ministry. You're disqualifying Titus from being saved. Trusting in a new gospel. Because here it is, moralistic living or anything regulations by which you're now saved. That's not the gospel. Again, it's legalism. The gospel provides freedom culturally and emotionally. The other gospel of legalism destroys both. But see, here's the issue, and and it's an issue today. It was an issue back there with Paul. This whole legalism thing, it silently runs rampant in the church. We put cultural and religious legalities on people without even noticing it. Like, man, I love this church. Renewal is amazing. It's dope. 
But 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 you know, why pastor why 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 you always wearing J's and never wearing a suit? Aren't you supposed to wear a suit if you're a pastor? Or why the people here they, they never wear they never dress up to go to church? That, that's the Christian thing, right? Look, look, look. Show me in the Bible where Jesus wore a suit. I just, I just want to say that. Just show me. I mean, y'all, Jesus, Jesus might probably had the latest rawhide sandals, you know, them exclusive joints that laced up in the back. You can't find them now because they was first century. You wasn't about to find that stuff. I don't, I don't know about suits and stuff. But, and now hear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't dress and look nice and appropriate for church. That's not what I'm saying. But all of that is, in reality, is a cultural phenomenon. I mean, take the black church, for instance. I'm not, and I'm not ragging on the black church. I love the black church, son of the black church. Black people started, because some of you don't know this, black people started dressing up for church as slaves because throughout the week, they had to wear rags where their identity is stripped from them. But on Sunday, they could be somebody. I could go to church and now I could be a deacon. I could be a mother. I could be a nurse. I can be an elder in church. So we dressed not only to honor God, but that was the one day out of the week that we could be somebody. So it was deeply, is is deeply steep within our culture. And this has been this happened back then, and it's gone all the way up through Jim Crow and even unto to to today. But see, here's the problem with this: most young black people have no recollection of this. Don't understand the history of why people dress up, why church is so formal. So what ends up happening is like, I don't want to go to the black church anymore because I, I, I don't want to wear a suit. I don't want to dress up or, or, or I, I, I got to follow more rules and regulations when I go to church than I have to do throughout the week. So I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. And please don't hear me saying Something's wrong with the black church, because I'm not. I love the black church. But culturally, culturally, we dressed up because it gave us a sense of being. Gives us a sense of identity that we didn't have throughout the week. Jesus, but here's the thing. Jesus didn't say you had to do that. Nor does he say that's how you're saved. So although we have to understand the why behind things happen or why we dress in church. We got to be careful not to look down upon or exclude people from the church because of our own legalism. Mm. But this isn't just the black church. The predominantly white church back in the day didn't want to worship with black people. So in essence, their cultural or racist bias, if you want to say, the the black church out of this was formed. But when you read the Bible, John 3.16, Jesus didn't just die for white people. He died for the whole world. So again, here's this cultural and racist dynamic that turned to legalism. And now on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, it's still the most divided hour of the week. We have to be careful to not add to the gospel our legalistic ways. And this isn't just racial or cultural. 
we put this on worship. Like, worship has to be high and energetic and people clapping their hands and singing out loud and, and, and has to have a full band. Or some people are like, well, it, it ha- no band at all. You can't clap or dance. This actually does happen in church. You, you can't do that. But hear me. All of that is just different legalities that we're putting on the gospel. The Bible speaks of worship in 1 Corinthians 14, and all it says is that there needs to be order in worship. That, what that means is you can't be running around acting crazy, speaking in tongues with no interpretation, where somebody walks in and they're like, what is going on here? This is crazy. But we do this in all kinds of ways. We put this on, we put legalities on food and say, well, man, you know, you Christian out here, you got to take care of your temple. You can't be eating that red meat and, and pork and stuff. And I'm going to tell you right now, I bless God for some barbecue ribs, some brisket with some barbecue sauce. Glory. Come on now. <laughs> some of y'all acting like y'all don't like ribs. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. We do this in all different type of ways. Paul says Titus was not circumcised according to Jewish tradition. But yet, he's been saved and called. He says, brothers, don't let these false apostles influence you. Paul needs to know that they haven't turned their backs on him, but more importantly, they haven't turned their backs on the message of grace. Listen to me. What Paul is saying here, what he's saying in the text, what he's confronting, is that a person is not saved by anything they do. What they bring to the table is saved solely by grace alone. Friends, beware. Beware of adding just the slightest hint of legalism to the message of grace. Because then it leads us to being saved by what we do, how we look, what we bring to the table, instead of what God has done for us. Ask yourself, are there any subtle legalistic ways that I've been adding on to the gospel? Am I judging people based off what they do or don't do when it comes to Christianity? Again, the gospel and freedom that comes from the gospel does not mean we can do whatever we want. But also in your search for some kind of frame to put this in, it does not mean in your misunderstanding of grace that we impose our cultural or our emotional or our religious bias onto others. See, to understand grace, we got to know Jesus. How do we get to know Jesus? By putting our faith in him and staying in the word of God. And as you stay in the word of God and you understand grace more, you start to realize this is countercultural to anything I can gain or have in this world. Got to be careful not to raise our bias, our traditions, and our cultural leanings or ethnicity to this space or place of being a non-negotiable. Because we then create legalism, which is not the gospel of grace. Paul keeps with this trend and he goes into verse 6 and he says, God shows no partiality and Peter is not greater than me. 
He says, I was called just to preach to the Gentiles. And he was called to preach to the Jews. What Paul is essentially saying here, in a nutshell, is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. God's grace is not partial to your race. It's not partial to your political view. It's not partial to your diet. It's not partial to your emotions or what you have done. God's grace is available to all. Thus, anyone can be saved. Anyone can come to Jesus. In John 3, 16, if we go back to that verse, it says, For God so loved the world. Everybody say world. God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved the world based off of what you do or how you look or if you're circumcised. This means that the gospel or even Christian unity, for that matter, is not based on your culture. It's not based on your ethnicity, your background or what you do. All are welcome to come to Christ and be in Christ. It says, for God so loved the world. Now, to be honest, this is significant. And it would have been very tough for the people in the passage to grapple with, even us today. Hence, what we're talking about in Galatia, because they've been adding to the gospel message. It's tough for them to grapple with this, because up until this point, God has been the God of the Israelites or the Jews of the day. But in one statement, John 3, 16, he makes this saving grace available to everyone. Hear me, family. Salvation is not specific to a certain people group regardless of their works, which goes back to God's love being unconditional. It's not based off of what you do. He chose us. He chose to love us. So instead, salvation is to all mankind. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that whoever shall believe, whoever shall believe, not the Jew, not the Gentile, not the white, not the black, not the Hispanic, but whoever. This is very important to us as a church. Because we live in one of the most diverse cities in all of America. Diversity among socioeconomic lines and racial and political lines, you name it, we're diverse in our city. But yet on the other side of the coin, we're one of the most divided cities on all of those lines too. Race, ethnicity, socioeconomic, political, we are divided on all of those lines. And if we want to be a church that's seeking the renewal of the city by the power of the gospel, then as Christians, we should be striving to see those walls of division broken down, seeing them come down in our city because we want to be for the city. It's not just because we want to be diverse. We're not here because we want to be diverse. It's not just for diversity's sake. No, no, no. But instead, we're called by the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that compels us to love our neighbor. I'm missing this thing. I get passionate about this because this is the vision that God gives us. And if you're missing it, look at it this way. God intentionally chose to love each and every one of us in here. And the reality is that I can say this because most of us in here are not Jewish. And so that means that Jesus, when he steps out of heaven, he has to choose now to love us and to save us by stepping over a racial or ethnic barrier that existed in that time. He sees you where you are, he loves you where you are, and he saves you where you are. He does the changing in you. It's all by his grace that we are saved. It's grace. 
And I'm not sure about you all, but I get happy when I think about him crossing all these ethnic lines and breaking down all these barriers. Because here's the reality. We're going to get to heaven one day, and we're going to be chilling with Jesus, and we're going to be hanging out, and we're going to be singing songs in Mandarin Chinese. We're going to be singing songs in Spanish. And we're not going to care. And we're going to be with the poor. We're going to be with the rich. All these people are going to be around. And the only thing we're going to care about or the only person is Jesus because we'll be in heaven with our Father. And I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to fellowship without all of this mess around me and just looking at my father, looking at his goodness and just that's all I care about. I can't wait. But until then, we're here on earth. And we're called to live intentionally. Crossing the lines that are in front of us. Loving our neighbor, first loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and our strength, and then crossing those lines that exist in front of us to love our neighbor as God has loved us. I mean, you look around this church, a multi-ethnic, multicultural church, this didn't just happen because we preach good messages on Sunday. This is intentional. It takes, it still takes intentionality. We're called to live intentionally, but y'all, this is tough. It's tough. And it's easy to slip back into what we're comfortable doing. I mean, you look at this passage. I mean, these apostles, they would have heard the same message that Paul had or heard from Jesus. Being Jewish, it's easy for them, just like us, to fall back into what they've always done. Now they put Jewish ramifications on salvation and say, well, 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 you know, we're all Jewish. So, I mean, in order to be Christian, you got to be Jewish. Or, you know, we all eat a kosher diet, so that, that's the diet that makes you Christian. Or, or you know, we all been circumcised, so, so you got to be circumcised to be a Christian. That, that's what Paul's confronting. No, 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 no. Titus wasn't circumcised. Or, or better yet, we, we, we all got a little bit of money, so, you know, you, you shouldn't be poor and be Christian. You got you to ask God for some stuff. And they confront that in, 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 in verse 10. Paul, don't forget about the poor. But we do this all the time. You know, you, you got to take care of your temple. So, you know, in order to be Christian, you got to work out all the time. Can't be looking sloppy. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't work out. You should work out. Or, or, or just anything you think of. We have these little subtle things that we, we you can't eat meat because it's bad for your body. Or you got to be vegan because of all these other things. And, and here's the thing. We may not say these things out loud. But we think them. They exist in our heart. And even to this, in this day, nobody might, they probably weren't saying all these things out loud. But these subtle additions to the gospel message, they don't add to the gospel of grace anything that needs to be there. They're, they're, they're actually nullifying or voiding it altogether. Paul says the gospel is for everyone. And in order for this to be true, y'all, we got to check our presuppositions at the door. We got to check our presuppositions and our opinions. We cannot be a multi-ethnic, multicultural, gospel-centered church if we let our presuppositions get in the way of loving someone that's different than us. Got to check those things at the door. So let me ask you, how does knowing that the gospel is for everyone change the way you view others? How does it affect the way you read the Bible? The way you do life with people in your community? What's your dinner table look like? 
as a Christian, this should lead us to love and to share our lives with others gracefully because it's by grace that we have been saved. Paul says the gospel is for everyone. So watch those presuppositions or opinions that we so easily tend to make convictions. Paul begins by calling out the apostles here to make sure they're not preaching or believing a false gospel. And then he validates his own message with proof, saying, here's Titus. Here's Titus, who's continually preaching the gospel. He's believed the same gospel message we have. He's not circumcised like everyone. And then lastly, Paul, in the passage, he's affirmed by his brothers. He wasn't seeking this affirmation, but they affirmed him. Y'all, there's something about affirmation from those closest to you. Something about it. Those friends or even spouses that believe the same as you, they're on the journey with you, they're in your corner. It means something when they say, I love you and I'm with you. The text says in verse 9, look at it with me. It says, and when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, the right hand of fellowship was a way to give credit. It's a way to say, we support you. We're with you. We got your back. This is why if you've been in a church where you, they talked about membership, they say something like, this this is the right hand of fellowship to these members. And and the reality is what they're saying is, we're with you. We're your community. We love you. We got your back. We want to see you grow. We want to see us grow now that we're together. But also in this passage, this also is them saying, Paul, we agree with you. And by doing so, we discredit all of those other false teachings that are going on around concerning the gospel. Hear me, family, this had to feel good to Paul. Paul has been out here preaching for 14 years. All to come back and say, man, I think I think the brothers that were are with me. I don't know if they, they believe the same thing. The brothers he holds in high regards. Regard, are they still with me? Friends, hear me. It does something for you to be affirmed by your community. It does something for you to know that people are for you. That they're with you. Paul, after being affirmed in the passage... He goes out, him and Barnabas, and they keep on preaching the message. They needed that affirmation. Although he wasn't seeking it, he got it. If I'm honest with you, it's part of my own testimony. In 2016, there was a season here at Renewal where most of you, you wouldn't recall it. You weren't here. It's before the pandemic. Uh, and if you were here, you might not have known about it because it was, it was more of an internal struggle that was going on with me. The church was barely two years old, and we were, we were doubling in size, growing. Everything looked great. But 
this was probably one of the hardest seasons of ministry that I ever experienced behind the scenes. Our church is growing, doubling in size, but it felt like those that were closest to me and even our staff at the time, some of my friends were deserting me. I felt like I couldn't do anything right. I was losing staff. I'm having to fire some. And by the summertime, there was nobody on the staff but me. It was hard. Because although the team at the time might not have been the right team, this was my team. This is who I, I believe in. This is who I've invested time in. And, and we spent time and I've spent money on. This is my team. So although on the outside looking in, you look at our church and you say, the church is going well. It looks great, y'all. I'm going to be honest. I was struggling. It's the first time in my life, not just ministry, where I felt like I, I might have to quit this thing. And it was at that moment that others spoke life into me. Although my, my, I was losing my staff, the church, I didn't lose it. None of, nobody left the church. And in my weakest moment, I had folks like some of you know Jay. He's an elder now at our church. He wasn't an elder back then. I remember him pulling me aside. He says, Derek, I believe in you. I believe in this vision. I've been here since day one, and I'm not going anywhere. My best friend, Chris Davis, one of my best friends out in San Francisco, he's a pastor. Some of you know him. He's preached here a couple times, and he, he, he called me every day, every day, no exaggeration, just to make sure I still believe my calling. Doc, how you doing? How was today? Tell me about it. What's going on? The board, the management team, they affirmed me. They told me to stand firm, Derek. You've been called to this. Keep going forward. Keep pushing Y'all, my wife, my wife, she prayed for me more than ever, affirmed me when nobody else was affirming. She had my back. And I say all this to say that, friends, again, it means something to have people in your life that are with you. People that are in the trenches with you. Do you have those people? It means something to know that people believe in you. You've heard us speak about this here at Renewal quite a bit. But the Christian walk was not one, is not one that's designed to be a solo walk. It's done best in community. One of the oldest tricks, I need y'all to hear this. One of the oldest tricks of Satan is to make you feel that you're alone on an island by yourself. Why? Because it's in that space where, where he can start plaguing your mind and your heart with all of these lies. Doubts. Thoughts like, nobody understands me. Nobody ever will. Maybe God isn't real. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's just an evil God and he's hateful. He, he doesn't love anybody and he's doing everything out in this world. Maybe the Bible isn't real. Maybe I'm of no good. To anyone. And the problem is that these thoughts and these things, they don't just stop with thoughts. After a while, if you're not in community and you still are in this lonely place, you start believing these things. 
loneliness or being out of fellowship, that's Satan's playground for the Christian. I mean, that, that's why when Jesus is in Matthew 4, when he's out in the desert and he's, 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 he's fasting, weakest moment, Satan comes in and tries to tempt him. Jesus, even in that moment, he doesn't just try to fight off Satan. What does he do? He goes back to the word of God and he fights him with the word. See, it's in those lonely moments that we are only able to fight based off the word of God, especially we're not in community. But again, we're not made to do this thing by ourselves. We're made to do this in community. Paul, when he's threatened by false theology right here in this passage, he's trying to be faithful in this calling, 14 years in this thing, but he doesn't keep plugging along by himself. What you see in this passage is that he goes to the other leaders to make sure that they're still with him. And it fuels him to keep going forward. Friends, who are those people that are in your life that keep you going? Do you have them? If you don't, this is what I want you to do. If you're struggling to figure out who those people are, just look around you. Go ahead. Take a look around you in this, in this congregation. Get to know somebody. Get plugged into a small group. You're not alone. And hear me. I got to say this because somebody's like, well, I don't want to get to know nobody. You see with Paul here that it takes intentionality to seek this thing out. The apostles, they don't come to Paul and say, Paul, you know we with you. Paul goes to find them. It takes intentionality to have community, family. This is vulnerable. This is hard. They could have looked at Paul and said, yeah, we don't believe that, Paul. You preaching a false gospel. He stepped out and they affirmed him. Three things we see in our passage today. One, there's freedom in Christ. The gospel is for everyone. And lastly, that communal affirmation is good. You are not alone. You are not alone. Friends, let's stand firm like Paul on the gospel of grace. But we can only do this if we first understand the foundation of grace by which we have been saved. The foundation that says Jesus hung on a cross for you. That work was through the love of God by grace. He sends his son to die for you. All the work that you needed to do was done on that cross. And so the Christian stands firm on the foundation of grace. That's where we work from. That's where we live from. And you know this space by knowing Jesus. Let's stand firm, family, on grace. Grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. God, I know there are folks in here that are still struggling with belief. God, I pray that even now that they would trust you. That they would know that there's only one message, there's only one way to you, and it's one of grace, and that's good. That you've done all the work on our behalf. And you just call us to believe. 
God, I pray that we would stop struggling with that and just open our hearts up. The Bible says that we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he, was, he died, he was buried, he rose from the grave, that we are saved. Based off of what he's done, not what we've done. I pray for the person that's already given their life to Christ, but yet they've been continually adding on to the gospel. I got to do this. I need to do this. I need to get this place in life. I need to do this, and then I'll finally make it. And reality is there's no top of the measuring stick or no level that we can reach here that we will actually make it. The making in this life is believing in you, and one day we'll see you face to face, and we'll say, here we are. But until then, Lord, I pray that we operate and live from a place of grace, knowing that what we received, everything in our life, life alone, breath in our lungs, the jobs we have, the families we have, every day we wake up in the morning is because of your grace and your goodness. Let us not take it for granted, but let us love and live from a place of grace see our communities and our families and the people around us change because of who we are to them and who you've been to us. God, we thank you for who you are. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Everyone said together, amen and amen. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I pray that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.